Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable Price point comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Will Sloan, film critic, host of the Michael and Us and Important Cinema Club podcast, and newly minted New Yorker contributor. Welcome to Shortcuts. Thank you for having me. Longtime Canada Land fan, first time guest. I'm so glad you're on. Today on the show, we'll be talking about Kings and Queens and Elves, the new Lord of the Rings series on Amazon. No, actually, we're going to be talking about Canada's new king and its late queen, and also its elves, or, or one elf in particular, animated, but an elf nonetheless. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. Happy to be here. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure you know how difficult it was for me to come, you know, mourning Queen Elizabeth all week to, you know, be able to get it together to be here. But, you know, I, I was inspired by her own strength across her 70-year reign and, and made my way down to Richmond Street. We are so glad you did. This episode is brought to you by Abdul Qureshi, Heather Pettipiece, Colby Parkilla, Jasper Markovitz, Haley Frail, Jess Forth, K. 
Carolina Stepien and Travis. My name is Travis, and I'm a communications professional in higher ed in Alberta. I've been a Canada Land subscriber going on five years now because what I get are common sense discussions about what's happening in our country. Yeah, I said it. Common sense. It's a stupid term, but what it means here is that Jesse and the team interview with the questions that my brain really wants to hear the answers to. They keep the conversations casual and the questions pointy. Canadian media could learn a thing or two. Thanks, Canada Land. Good day, everyone. We're coming on the air with some sad breaking news. The BBC is interrupting its normal programs. Interrupting our programs to inform you. The Queen has died. Queen Elizabeth II, Britain's longest reigning monarch, has died at the age of 96. Prince Charles immediately becomes King Charles, the King of England, the King of Canada, by the way. As her 12th Canadian Prime Minister, I'm having trouble believing that my last sit-down with her was my last. Queen Elizabeth II has died, and this coming Monday is a statutory holiday, if you live in Prince Edward Island. Uh, (laughs) That province, which I believe is Canada's whitest, or at least was as of the 2016 census, is the only one granting every person a paid day off for the Queen's funeral. Through much of the rest of the country, though notably not in Ontario or Quebec, it's a mishmash of government workers and or schools that will have the day off. Federal government workers get the day off too, but as for federally regulated private sector employers like Canada Land, well, the Labour Minister said they're welcome to follow suit but are not required to. And, and let's just say that no one here thought it was even worth bothering Jesse about. I raise this because in a way it kind of makes sense. Like what better way to honor Canada's monarchy than a half-hearted, inconsistent effort to scrape the bare minimum of symbolism? Today we're going to talk about the disconnect between the public and the media on this, how that's evolved over time, and how Canada's crown is still in fact serving one of its intended purposes. Do you get a day off for the Queen's funeral, Will, or will you be taking a day off for the funeral of legendary French filmmaker Jean-Luc Godard instead? Oh, well, I was feeling very sad about that. Uh, He's my Queen Elizabeth, but I'm a full-time freelancer now. I'm a full-time podcast guy, so I could theoretically give myself the day off, but probably not. Like I said earlier, I will try to hold back the tears and just soldier through the next couple of days. But I do think it's sad that you don't get a day off for this. I mean, I I just think that if we are going to have a symbolic monarchy, like... Can we at least get this out of it? I mean, please. It was one of the things I was sort of looking forward to because we, you know, from years ago that was expected because it happened when the last royal funeral 70 years ago, when they announced that it wouldn't actually be a mandatory statutory holiday, I'm like, how could could I actually I mean, who's going to protest for one? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And it's really always interesting to see the indifference quantified. So like back in the spring, Angus Reid did a survey asking Canadians how relevant the royal family is to them personally. About three quarters of respondents said it was no longer relevant at all or less relevant than it used to be. Well, another quarter said it was as relevant as it used to be, though goodness knows what they thought the baseline was. Another question they asked people back in the spring, putting aside your thoughts on politics, how they would feel personally when the queen dies. And one of the options picked by a fifth of people was not affected at all 
I won't feel anything for her passing, which in its phrasing, its its beautiful cold phrasing delightfully calls to mind Camus the Stranger or perhaps the last <laughs> episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> and this week in a Leger survey done in conjunction with the Canadian press, more than three quarters of respondents said they weren't attached to the British monarchy at all, but half indicated that they were very or somewhat likely to tune in for the funeral, though it's not clear how many were aware that it starts at 6 a.m. Eastern and 3 a.m. Pacific. Quebec, unsurprisingly, it's higher. It's 87% said they felt no attachment to the monarchy. Do those numbers sound about right to you, Will? Like, who was the last Canadian you met who was, like, passionately pro-monarch? Oh, God, it probably would have been a grandparent of mine, I want to say. Perhaps somebody in my extended family still is, but I don't know personally anybody who's passionate about it. I know some people who would have said that they felt a little bit sad or they felt something when she died. I think just because of the longevity, you know, she is uh, – whatever else she was, she was a link to an earlier time. She was the longest-serving monarch. So like John Huston says in Chinatown, politicians and ugly buildings all become respectable if they last long enough. Mm. You know, like (laughs) to a certain extent, you feel a certain sentimental attachment to something just for lasting that long. Although I say you feel – I don't personally feel that. I felt felt a twinge of, huh – You know, just because at this point you don't really expect it, but I have no personal attachment at all. And I think the people who do say that they have an attachment, clearly the monarchy does not play an active role in virtually anyone's life in Canada aside from seeing them on their money. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, in terms of like in a literal respect, yeah. So I feel like the people who would feel an attachment to them are probably comparable to the people who might feel an attachment to something like, say, the Oscars. You know, it's mm-hmm. like that doesn't have a direct impact on anyone's life either. But there are some people who like to see the clothing, and there are some people mm-hmm. who, uh, you know, just just like seeing certain famous people on the red carpet, who like the regalia and the pomp and circumstance of it. There are people who remember seeing Diana getting married, uh, or you know, maybe had or things going wrong for that matter. Well, yeah, disastrously yeah. wrong in front of an audience of the whole world. But yeah, I have sensed a much more muted response than there might mm-hmm. have been ten years ago, not just among my social circles, but also in the media. And, you know, I wouldn't say that history necessarily bends towards progress, but something that has happened Mm. in the last decade is ideas about class and colonialism have become much more mainstream that Mm. weren't as mainstream 10 years ago. And a lot of that's because of social media. Uh, Mm. There are ideas that would not have made it past traditional gatekeepers 15 years Mm -hmm. ago. And... Big media companies, I think, understand that as well because social media has become this sort of regulatory force where if after the queen dies, all you have on the CBC are like five white monarchists, Mm. people on social media or other places are going to say, what's the deal with this? Can't you speak to somebody who can talk to how the monarchy was this symbol of colonial oppression for centuries? Mm -hmm. So much of what the monarchy represents kind of stands against certain ideas, certain narratives to become much more popular in the last 10 years, rightly so, I think. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like how Canada's uh, bicentennial a couple years ago. Mm -hmm. Five years ago already. Not bicentennial. It was like 150 years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The fact that we can't even remember what the word for it is. (laughs) That's right. Uh, But the fact that that just had this sort of muted Mm -hmm. pallor to mix my metaphors. There are certain narratives that these big symbolic celebrations these big symbolic institutions Mm -hmm. represent that fly in the face of a lot of other narratives that we're starting to reckon with now. Yeah. I've been really enjoying watching the media figure out how to grapple with these changing attitudes and 
yeah, not just the indifference, but he said, like, as the ambivalence as well as the outright hostility. <laughs> what is the proper way to eulogize someone who may not themselves have been evil necessarily, but, you know, spent 70 years the head of an institution that's famous for literally and figuratively overseeing and benefiting from some of the worst evils in history. Like, I found myself kind of sad about the Queen dying, but I don't know why, and I felt kind of also bad for feeling sad. Yeah, and just trying to wrestle with that. There's been some good coverage. I mean, I've been quite impressed. I particularly liked an interview that Rosie Barton did with Lawrence Hill on the CBC the other day. Back in 2008, Hill won the Commonwealth Writers' Prize for his novel, The Book of Negroes. And that got him a short meeting with the Queen, who, like pretty much everyone else who met the Queen, you know, we had a really good encounter there, has fond memories of her as a person. But mixed thoughts more generally. How would you respond to people who feel also conflicted a little bit about um, what the monarchy represented, colonization, and then also the woman that the queen was? Well, I welcome their sense of conflict. I feel it too. But let's remember that if we're going to be conflicted about the role of the crown in in carrying out slavery and uh, persecuting indigenous people and colonizing the world in in sometimes hideous ways, local authorities, uh, government agencies, people in positions of power, corporations in Canada, the United States and other countries are fully complicit in that colonial and racist history. So it's a bit much to wave a sanctimonious finger at a head of state who's a figure your head, basically, and and as if she were the sole perpetrator of all these injustices. We have to look at Canada, too. I found that interview very interesting. It's an example of the sort of interview that I feel like if it had happened 15 years ago, there would have been this great backlash, if not from the public, because the public wouldn't have had an instrument like social media Mm -hmm. to communicate the backlash, but a great backlash from... I don't know, various newspaper columnists about how can you let something like this on the – how can you have someone speaking ill of the dead, which he doesn't actually do. But there would have Mm -hmm. been been this wave of like she just died for goodness sake. Can't you let the body rest for a week? There was some of that, but I feel like the window of that gets shorter and shorter. Mm -hmm. I mean Lawrence Hill in his interview actually doesn't – it's not like he's dancing on her grave or anything. He offers mm-hmm. a very nuanced perspective on her, talking about how his mother, who was a civil rights activist, talked about when he was growing up how the crown would suppress indigenous peoples, was very anti-monarchist, whereas his father very much romanticized the monarchy. And he makes a good point about how people were constantly wanting Queen Elizabeth to make an apology for the role that the monarchy would play in colonialism all these years. And and he said, to paraphrase, the apology is fine, whatever, but it's just a symbolic apology. She's just one, one front-facing cog in the much larger machine. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he talks about meeting her and about how she was, you know, sort of witty and charming in person, which I'm sure she was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure that's part of the job. And uh, made me think that, yeah, I mean, for all the, for all the shit I'm going to talk about her, I probably would be... <laughs> If she was in front of me right now, yeah. I'd probably be very polite. I, 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 I would be overwhelmed, frankly, if I was in front of Queen Elizabeth, yeah. just the sheer fact of her. My theory is that Queen Elizabeth probably impressed a lot of people when they met her just because, like, the rigmarole of meeting her was probably so intimidating. you got to learn how to bow or curtsy or you got to mm. dress to the nines. And, and the dogs are great. Oh, yeah, sure. And then, you know, you go into the place and it's Buckingham Palace, for God's sake. It's, yeah. you know, when you meet somebody in the middle of all this who has basic human interaction skills, it probably kind of yeah, blows you away. Yeah, it probably goes pretty far, <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, and I always feel like it's kind of like – I feel like it's almost cheating or too easy to rely on the Toronto Sun, for example, as a bad coverage. But 
woke mob dances on Queen's grave was an actual headline that ran in an actual print newspaper. Uh, for, I hope they didn't literally dance on her grave. <laughs> uh, well, I, well, it was too early to find out, I suppose. I mean, I don't, I can't imagine people could access the gravesite yet. It actually ran in four newspapers because it was the Toronto Sun, Ottawa Sun, Calgary Sun, and Edmonton Sun. And it wasn't a column, but rather actually framed as a news story by Brad Hunter, which started... A coterie of wokesters bursting with bile, bitterness, jargon, and BAs unleashed a torrent of hatred towards Queen Elizabeth in the hours after her death Thursday. Using a bonanza of social justice buzzwords, Her Majesty's critics from academia and their journalistic allies slammed the monarch as a colonizer. So he was doing some real shoe leather reporting with this one. Oh, he, yeah. he searched the queen on Twitter, you know, and, and, and he found he found some stuff. And uh, probably for Thoris for certain words, like, what's the synonym for bile that also starts with B? <laughs> I like how he puts the quotes around colonizer. I mean, the nicest thing I can say about that is maybe it's like a Frankenstein slash Frankenstein's monster situation where he's annoyed at people for calling her the colonizer rather than the abomination of an institution top which she sat for seven decades. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I found this article yeah. quite listless. I think it, it's a really bog standard modern day right wing article where it's just like this person died, and can you believe these SJWs and these critical race theory professors on Twitter who are saying these these terrible things? And uh, can you believe these people are teaching your kids? And then the liberal media is supporting this, but. It could have been any one. Like if Henry mm. Kissinger died tomorrow, mm. you could just do this exact same article and just play Mad Libs with it, plug in a couple of new tweets. But the tweets would be even better, I imagine. Yeah, like, yeah. People have been waiting for that one for oh, so long. <laughs> yeah. The article starts with him quoting this long tweet from literally a, a critical race theory professor. Talk about a job that's under attack these days, which, you know, it's exactly the sort of tweet you'd expect it would be. I heard the chief monarch of a thieving, raping, genocidal empire is finally dying. May her pain be excruciating. So, you know, that's the first tweet. Mm-hmm. And then goes on to note that Jeff Bezos, no less, came to the defense of the queen in retaliation for this attack. And I mean, this kind of speaks to the fact that the power dynamic is yeah. a little askew here. I mean... And the Toronto Sun, which, you know, as convenience, you know, emphatically described itself as the paper on behalf of the little guy and the little person, they're throwing a hissy fit about people being mean to a, a fucking queen and cheering on a, a billionaire who's also being, you know, throwing a hissy fit around someone who's being mean to a queen. I mean, it's it's never surprising when they do that. But it's always fun. Well, the article's disappointing, though, because it sort of just takes for granted. It doesn't really get into, I mean, mm-hmm. I wouldn't expect this article to interrogate deeply the thinking behind these tweets or anything, but it just sort of takes this given, like, huh, get a load of these wackos. And then it also doesn't mount a defense of the queen. I was kind of hoping no, that yeah. it, would, it would become a little bit more reactionary in that sense. It would spend just a little bit more time on the, like, you ungrateful people, this woman, Elizabeth Windsor, has sat there on that throne for 70 years overseeing this world during times of tumultuous change, and she's been this firm and steady presence, and you ingrates, you ingrates who come over here to our country and don't understand our values. I don't know. I was kind of, like, where's the red meat? I think they just, just realized they had like, you know, two-thirds of a page in the paper to fill, and that screenshots of tweets take up a lot of space in when you lay them out in a paper, and like, it did seem really half-hearted, as though it was one of maybe three stories he was filing that day, and mm-hmm. probably the least substantive. But, I mean, once again, this is a story that ran in four newspapers <laughs> as like a news story, right? Now, it's interesting to go back just a few days before that to Wednesday the 7th and look at the news the Queen's death was about to push aside. That that day, the BBC interrupted its own programming to report on the latest developments in Saskatchewan. 
Well, we're just interrupting that program to bring you a breaking news update because three days after a deadly stabbing spree in Saskatchewan province in Canada, the surviving suspect, Miles Sanderson's whereabouts remain unknown. That night, Miles Sanderson was taken into police custody and then died shortly after. And what an angry, incredulous swell there was on Twitter that evening. I know, yeah, Twitter, Twitter. But, like, this was one of those things where, by who was talking, you could tell this was going to move into the newspapers and media discourse over the coming days. Around just, like, just like what the fuck happened? How is it that the RCMP takes someone into custody and that person? And then, and then all they'll say is, well, the person was in medical distress. We can't tell you anything else. And as CTV's Glenn McGregor pointed out in a tense exchange with the public safety minister. Do you really and- think medical distress is satisfactory explanation of what happened to this person? Well, I think what's that, that everybody dies in medical distress. Like, what, <laughs> could you narrow it down a little? Well, again, I uh, would not want, in any way want to preempt the process that has been undertaken. It brought out a sort of a long time coming crisis of confidence in our institutions in wondering, like, how can we live in a country in which our government and our police forces are this routinely secretive. This is not common in other democracies. How did this person die under their watch? Why won't they tell us a damn thing? Why do they not seem to care that we have any sort of right to this information? And that seemed like it was just on the verge of really spilling out and becoming the center of conversation. And then, of course, the next day, the Queen, on Thursday, the Queen is terminally ill and passes away. And so by Friday, Saskatchewan pub coverage was bumped to page A12 of the Globe, A16 of the Star, and out of the pages of the National Post entirely, which devoted its whole news section to the monarchy, which, I mean, I can't really even really get angry about. It's a thing to do when the Queen dies. But it does kind of show that sometimes, yeah, news coverage is a, a zero-sum game. Yeah, yeah, it's very sad when you put it that way, Yeah. I think it's fascinating. I think it's such an interesting metaphor for like just the moment when the confidence in Canada's institutions reached this long coming crisis point brought about by their own secrecy, opacity and ineffectualness, ineffectuality. And here comes that strong and steady leader. You exactly. Know, f- one more time to cap off her seven year reign to keep things in control. <laughs> exactly. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. 
but often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. As you know, on the show, Will, we like to duly note things. Will, what would you like to note duly today? Well, like I said earlier, I've been in sort of TIFF mindset Mm -hmm. over the last week, been in movie mindset. And I would like to bring a story from the wild world of showbiz that's been occupying my attention. So last night, I went to the Midnight Madness screening. Oh, I want – yeah, I'm going to see that on Saturday. You probably won't though because because, uh, uh, the movie is called The People's Joker. Yeah. And it's a really entertaining movie by a filmmaker named Vera Drew. And it has been pulled after last night's screening. Are you fucking kidding me? I'm sorry. I I wish I was. That was the only movie I actually managed to get tickets to this year. Well, I'll read you a little bit of an article from Variety called People's Joker, queer movie set in Batman universe pulled from TIFF over rights issues. Aw, Jesus Christ. Um, It says... Uh, Warner Brothers Discovery, (laughs) which owns DC Comics and holds the rights to the Batman universe, hasn't yet commented on the film, though it appears the studio may have issued a cease and desist to block the movie's three further screenings, which have now been canceled. So They um, haven't emailed me. I technically have tickets for two of those screenings through a whole TIFF hijinks thing that is a very typical TIFF hijinks thing. Well, if you go to their Uh, website now, you'll find you can't buy any more, unfortunately. So I was there at the screening last night, and, I mean, the movie is a work of satire. Uh, I know that... The filmmakers have certainly sought legal counsel, which has advised them that it is a work of satire. It has a big disclaimer at the start of the movie saying that Warner Brothers, DC Comics, not involved at all. But it is a movie that's set in the Batman universe, has all the characters, Batman, the Riddler, Two-Face, everyone. Um, But it is uh, a movie about a queer woman's coming of age and coming out story as, you know, she embraces the Joker identity, among other things, not to spoil too much, because hopefully the movie will come out at some point. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully there's legal counsel here. But, you know, Batman is not a hero in this movie. Uh, there are a lot of playing with the characters that obviously the rights holders of the characters don't take too kindly to. But I just think... Our corporate masters are always telling us that superheroes are our modern myths, you know, and they're always plastering every available surface of the cultural ecosystem with these superheroes. You know, you get a movie like the Lego movie or something like that, uh, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, whatever that was Mm. called, where the implicit thesis is this intellectual property is yours to play with. Uh, You can be Spider-Man. You can put all these Lego universes together and do anything you want. But if we actually do all own these characters. And I actually do think at this point we all do have some stake mm-hmm. in, in someone like Batman. He's been around for so long. He means so much to so many people. Frankly, I think he should be in the public domain, honestly. Or or if not that, there has to be some workaround. There has to be some way where somebody can take this character who, if he is our modern folklore, you know, if he is um, this thing that we all share together and that is so tied up in people's uh, lives and childhoods and and in the case of this filmmaker, Vera Drew, her coming of age, you know, there has to be some way that that can be incorporated in creative transformation in art. Mm-hmm. So I really hope that a lot of people rally around this cause. Oh, my God. <sighs> duly noted. My duly noted is something somewhat more encouraging. There was a story originally reported in Courier Laval, uh, which is a 
Laval newspaper, uh, Un candidate du PQ de Laval dans l'eau chaude, or PQ candidate in Laval is in hot water. Uh, they reported that a candidate in the Quebec provincial election for the Parti Québécois had, in fact, appeared in a porn movie recently, something else on Pornhub. Her face was disguised in it, but they identified her via some distinctive tattoos. They had a quote from a liberal candidate who had previously run the municipal party uh, in Laval that she had run for and who was quite uh, upset about it. The rough English translation via Google Translate is, if he had known at the time, would he have made her one of his candidates? No way. Obviously, this was not the kind of candidate we were looking for to represent the citizens of Laval. Now, what was great is what happened afterwards and that the party very much stood behind her. The media response was sympathetic with her. And the liberal candidate ended up apologizing for his remarks. Uh, which, to me, this speaks to an incredible evolution of the understanding of sex work as work in Canada and how this is treated as basically any sort of instance of like job shaming would be. Whether, I mean, you can reasonably wonder whether this should have been used in the first place. I think there's reasonable arguments or whether it was reported sensitively or not. And unfortunately, my French isn't good enough to be able to read those nuances. But I'm really, really heartened and encouraged by how this has been received, at least, you know, at least within Quebec. And I don't know. I feel like this is actually a positive thing for like a public understanding of what it means to to be engaged in sex work. Yeah, no, I think that's terrific. And I mean, I remember one time 10 or 15 years ago when a one particular mm-hmm. uh, actor in, in Disney movies had her nude photos leaked. Mm. And I remember she had to apologize. She had to <sighs> apologize for stolen nudes. Mm. So, you know, yeah. to be at this point is very mm-hmm. encouraging. Yeah. Duly noted. I also want to mention that the backbench will be back with its new host, Matea Roach. It's coming out this coming Tuesday, and I am really looking forward to it. Matea is amazing. Subscribe to the backbench wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss this episode. <laughs> okay, Mr. McBride, your evil toys are ready to be delivered. Oh, good. Now harness up the sled. But the reindeer aren't here. That voice belongs to a cartoon elf named Pops. But before I even knew what his name was or what he sounded like, I encountered him in a dream. An image of the rotund, bespectacled fellow with a gray beard and little fawn ears taunted me in my sleep on the night of Saturday, September 3rd. I can pinpoint the date because I went back in my phone's browser history to see myself searching, searching for his identity like so many others, trying to solve the mind-bogglingly tenacious mystery of just who the hell he was and where he came from. This is your fault, Will. On September 2nd, you tweeted, My GF and her friends have spent years trying to figure out what cartoon, glimpsed in the background of a family photo, this was from. Dozens, maybe even hundreds of people have seen this image, but nobody knows what it is from. If you recognize this man, please tell me. So if you go into your Twitter account now, what does it say for how many times that tweet has been seen by people? Uh, Let me find out. So that tweet now has 12 million impressions um, uh, you know, almost 9,000 retweets, 74,000 favorites, and several thousand replies to it. And I guess what was notable about the tweet was that it took so long for people to find it, to figure out what this image was from, mm-hmm. you know, like it took three or four days of seemingly the entire internet seeing it before somebody was finally able to uh, discover it. It kills me that I was away at a 
cottage and wasn't able to browse except to bring the my full phone. the full Goldsby treatment oh to my finding God. this. I mean, my approach was looking via newspaper databases because I figured everyone else was doing image wise. So I was trying looking for words like cartoon, no, Christmas, Novana in the early nineties. And I mean, it did turn out to be a Canadian Christmas cartoon from the early nineties. And the only thing that was surprising about it was that it was not Novana. You've been on Twitter for a decade or more as long as I have. You've tweeted about pop culture detritus maybe three or four times a day. What do you think of it was about this that became this weird ad- life-changing adventure? Life-changing is too strong. A weak-changing week adventure, changing for adventure. sure. So the story of this image was that in 2016, I didn't know the full provenance of the image before I posted mm. it, but my girlfriend had been uh, obsessed with this image for a long time, and all her friends had been obsessed with it. And all I knew was that it belonged to some friend of a friend whose family was peripherally connected mm. to my girlfriend. And it was this family photo that just had this elf in the background, and nobody could figure out what it, it was, was from. It was on a TV screen in the background, yeah, right? Yeah, it was on a TV screen. And it belonged to a woman named Emily Charette, by the way, who lives in Ottawa, who I've since connected with. And somebody posted on Facebook, and hundreds of replies. It kept getting shared. This is back in 2016, and nobody could figure out what it was. And I know that I shared it once in 2019. Nobody could find out what it was. And like, anytime anybody shared it, people would just go insane. They'd be like, oh, it's got to be from the Littles. It's got to be from Thumbelina. Have you seen a, a troll in Central Park? Something like that. Star Wars Ewoks, something like that. And the thing about the image, though, is it looks so familiar. It looks mm-hmm. very specific because it looks like something that's Canadian. It also looks like it's something from the late 80s or early 90s. It looks like something that is not Disney, but sort of a lower tier mm-hmm. one. Sort of, uh, it's got elf Don ears. Don Bluth at best. Yeah, at best Don Bluth, but probably not even that. Probably something that was on YTV. It's specific enough, but this character could also come from anything. And you realize just how many sort of mediocre children's entertainments mm-hmm. were made at that time. It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack. and. Basically, uh, my girlfriend, we were talking about it once again, and conversation just turned to this image, and she said, you've got more Twitter followers now. Would you mind posting it just one more time? And I said, sure. And then I posted it, and, you know, it's all the same replies all over again. It's the Littles. It's Thumbelina. It's, uh, have you seen a troll in Central Park? <laughs> and I, w- I just thought, okay, I'm washing my hands of this forever now. Uh, I just muted it. But eventually, after 12 million impressions, somebody did find it. Somebody, somebody, for God's sake, knew somebody who had a VHS copy of it. And I almost wept because it had just, I just totally resigned myself to this being this completely forgotten image. And at first I thought, well, maybe this is moving because this is one mystery, one pop culture mystery that mm-hmm. even the internet can't solve. Yeah. But then it was moving because the internet actually did solve it. Somebody actually did find it. Everyone worked together. Like there was this popular YouTuber with a million and a half subscribers called Blame It On George. It was one of his fans who was able mm-hmm. to find it ultimately. It felt like a big community effort. Yeah. The most extraordinary thing about this piece of knowledge that was just seemed to be out of reach of the internet or beyond the reach, at least for much farther than knowledge is. And it's this weird clash of, on the one hand, there's the internet with, in theory, contains all knowledge or at least the resources to find all knowledge. And on the other hand, there's 
something that exists only on VHS form and probably not too many copies in existence. It kind of reminded me of how like there's like a popular TikToker in Toronto who's a radio host and like a lot of her, her TikToks are just showing people how terrestrial commercial music radio works and mm-hmm. like the behind the scenes that there's weird this, I don't know, it's just it's an amazing clash of just on the one hand you have the emergent consciousness of the internet coming up against something that does not yet exist on the internet or at least does not yet properly cataloged on the internet in a way that allows people to find it. Well, I mean, seemingly everything's available on the internet in the sense that, I mean, if you compare it to the local blockbuster you used to go to growing up, sure, there's a lot more there. But there's a lot of cultural detritus Mm -hmm. that doesn't get passed on from generation to generation, that there's no sort of market incentive to pass it on. And I guess in the case of this special, which, by the way, was called the soulmates in The Gift of Light. Mm -hmm. I guess it was simply not widely distributed enough. You would actually think that if it was children's Christmas special from the early 90s, somebody would have the sufficient nostalgia for it to upload it on YouTube at least. And now it is. Now several copies on YouTube. Yeah, I mean, ultimately after the fact, I found the original TV listing for it in the Ottawa Citizen from November 24th, 1991 on, on the television column. Wednesday, The Soulmates, The Gift of Light, CBC at 7.30 p.m. The voices of Al Waxman and Sheila McCarthy are featured in the Christmas animated special about visitors from another planet who help save Christmas through the power of positive thinking. That's right. I watched it last night. I imagine you've seen it at least, a, at least once. I have watched it once. How would you describe it? Well, it is pretty much the platonic ideal of that kind of thing. Yes. Um, it, it looks like a backdoor pilot for something, right? Like yeah. It was probably meant to be a TV show because it establishes this mythology that why would you do that for a half-hour cartoon? Mm-hmm. The plot is that there's this very sinister man. He's supernatural in some way, I believe. Angus Mc- McBrag. That's right. Angus McBrag. And there's now fan art online of him. <laughs> oh, great. I'm glad, I'm glad the Soulmates community has yes. started to pop up. But he spreads negative energy, negative thinking. Christmas is around the corner, but he's going around just spreading bad vibes about it. Santa's not real, that sort of thing. And Santa himself becomes so infected by this negative thinking that he says, you know what? The world is is just over me, over Christmas. I'm leaving the North Pole. And it comes down to the reindeer comet to team up with these two extraterrestrial visitors, the soulmates. They look a little bit like those stay alert, stay stay safe bunnies. Like they've got little, uh, they're kind of cool and they're sort of 80s new wave light in their fashion. And they've got like skateboard type glider things that they ride on. Uh, Totally radical guys. And they work together to restore the spirit of Christmas and bring Santa back. Orion and Aurelia, listen carefully. Yes, Yes, good good soul. This job is of unusual importance for our first mission. Don't worry. Comet's message has us pumped. For sure. With our soulmate powers, we'll help Comet find Santa and exclusively liberate Christmas. Come on, Aurelia, surf's up. It's not terrible. It is every bit as weird as as you would imagine. With Biggs basically exactly the voice cast uh, you would imagine. It's been interesting. The creator has been on Twitter recently tweeting at people a lot of like hard emojis and things. Very excited. Yeah, she was somebody who I guess was has not been in the entertainment industry in a while and has been very tickled that yeah. uh, there's, there's this media frenzy around this completely forgotten special. Yeah, and she seems pretty kind of like – yeah, people are just you – know, 
talking about how weird it must have been in the 80s that this whole thing with new wave stuff about positive thinking. She's totally into that. She's now a mystery author. Her new book is How to Murder a Marriage, The Ex-Whisperer Files, number one. Now, Will, how did you end up writing about this for The New Yorker? Well, I'll just say that I was for like two days the subject of a mini media frenzy. I was interviewed by Newsweek, twice by the CBC, Gizmodo. It was... Very exciting. And I'm happy that most of those places were also able to connect with the person whose image it actually was, uh, who I think had a better a better claim on it. But I just got an email out of the blue from an editor at The New Yorker with the subject line, write about the elf cartoon for The New Yorker, question mark, and did a double take. And I thought, well, there's a, a 50% chance I'm being pranked here, but I'm going to... I'm going to do it, and let's see if I actually am being pranked. And then once the fact checkers started calling me, I figured that was, uh, okay, I think I think we're safe at this point. But, I mean, I'll, I'll just say that it was a literal dream come true, you know? It was yeah. very nice to be in The New Yorker, to see my name in that font. You're a longtime arts writer, presumably having a byline in The New Yorker is a longtime ambition. You know what? It's a dream that I, I had when I was 15 that I then put aside for a long time thinking, well, that's probably not the path I'm really going down. I won't ever be in The New Yorker, really, but 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 that's okay. I'll find, I'll find validation in other ways. But I think I would have imagined it would have been for a topic a little more workmanlike and uh, uh, some, something that wasn't about going viral on Twitter. <laughs> but anything that can get me in those pages, I'll take. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, and the, the response I imagine. Uh, what, what is fact-checking like that, uh, uh, the process like for something like this? Rigorous, yes. They go, they go over everything very carefully. When I was saying some of the suggestions that people gave mm-hmm. me, they wanted to see tweets for every single one of them proving that they were an actual suggestion that I got. They reached out to everyone named in the article, the person who had the the image, uh, an artist named uh, Sophie Campbell who did a blog post about it some years ago. They they reached out to all those people to verify the details. So it was basically I spent the day on the phone with the fact checkers. Oh, wow. It, it's a good lesson too because you forget that when you write for something at that level, it gets more and more rigorous. And so next time I, uh, I do it, I will make sure, okay – Never do any figure of speeches that you can't justify. Never do any generalizations you can't justify. Literally, be your own fact checker. Not that the fact checking process was yeah. difficult or anything. It's just it's it's just it, it keeps you on your game. Oh yeah, no, I, I could imagine that would be that would be a lot of fun. For me, there was still one more mystery, and that was like, who actually played this elf? The elf was named Pops. We can infer from the con- like that's why other characters refer to him as. He never says my name is Pops, and. In the credits, it's kind of like all the people you'd expect. I mean, it's obviously Al Waxman, Sheila McCarthy. Al Canadian Waxman. royalty. You oh, know? yeah. Al Waxman was Angus McBrag, and I think Sheila McCarthy was one of the soulmates. I'm not actually sure. In the credits, I recognized the, the name of the casting director, Beth Russell. She's the head of casting at Stratford now. Hmm. So I emailed her saying like, oh, I think you're, you're probably better than anyone else qualified to say if you recall or <laughs> recognize the voice, who was this? And she wrote back to me and said, I actually, this was last week, I actually heard a bit of the interview yesterday, I think referring to yourself on, on As It Happens or on CBC, <laughs> but didn't clock that this was a project I'd worked on. At the time, I was doing a lot of voice casting as casting director for CBC Radio as well as freelancing, and there were many projects, so they have somewhat blurred in my memory. I watched the show, and I'm pretty sure that Pop was voiced by a lovely actor named Wayne Robson. Sadly, we can't ask Wayne to confirm because he died in 2011 while he was in rehearsals at the Stratford Festival for The Grapes of Wrath, which I cast. And then 
Beth also mentioned a connection I didn't make, which was that I was in a grade one class at John Ross Robertson with her daughter. Right now, I remember, I remember this, per- this person in my class. I remember my mom telling me this person was a big casting director who had, I believe, done Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat at the Elgin at the time with Donny Osmond. I remember that show well, yes. Yeah. They're like, oh, that is fun and interesting. And also the name Wayne Robson was on my in my mind because I just rewatched Sarah Polly's stories we tell. And there's and Wayne Robson is one of the characters portrayed in it. Even though his name's not mentioned, it's just in the credits. There's an actor playing him. He's also in the beloved Canadian cult film Cube. Oh, which I still have not seen. And I think he's also in Welcome to Mooseport, the final oh, Gene goodness. Hackman theatrical effort. Yeah. Wow. So uh, a long a long and storied career in addition to his participation in Canada's show, Red Green. And, and now also recognized in The Gift of Light, which could turn out to be the most widely seen Canadian movie this year. Well, either that or probably like Sarah Pauly's Women Talking. Uh, either way, something with, with Sheila McCarthy in it. <laughs> yeah. That's Shortcuts for this week. Thanks for joining me, Will. Happy to be here, Jonathan. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. I'm Jonathan Goldsby, and you can email me at jonathan at CanadaLand.com, or you can email Jesse, who's the regular, usual host of the show, at jesse at CanadaLand.com. He says he reads everything you send. I host Wag the Doug about Ontario politics, about Ontario's Premier Doug Ford. That should have a new episode out next week. Where can people find you, Will? I am on Twitter at Will Sloan ESQ, and uh, like Esquire. And uh, check out my podcast, The Important Cinema Club, which is a film podcast I host with my friend Justin DeClue, and Michael and Us, which is a culture and politics podcast I host with my friend Luke Savage. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capicchione. Our production coordinator is Andre Pru. Theme music is by so-called syndications by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman, found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.